Christ, we do have the capacity to love God back because of his finished work and our union with him. Uh, for our prayer supplication uh, today, it's a congregational prayer supplication. We are going to pray uh, about this new uh, abortion law that has, been, that has been passed in our state. And what I want us to do is pray for our elected officials. And I want us to pray for the churches in our state that we will not get self-righteous here. Pray that we, as a church in our city and our state, that we will be truly pro-life from the womb to the tomb, not just pro-birth. And we want to pray that believers will open up their homes as foster parents and adoption to these kids who may put, get put into the system now. And so let us not just rejoice of a passing of a law. Now let us be the hands and feet of Jesus to really love these kids who are going to need homes to go to. So please join us in praying for this law, praying for the parents and the moms, praying for those who will even consider having an abortion, that they will have people who will love them to be there with them. And so we don't know what these moms go through. So we need to pray for them that they will have other options. And so go to this, go to the Lord now, and I'll close our time in a moment and pray as you feel led.
Father God, you, this is an opportunity for the churches in Huntsville, the churches in our state, to be in the hands and feet of Jesus. And I pray that, that you give us the humility uh, to love well. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are elected officials in our state. You give them wisdom as they continue to try to govern uh, righteously. And I pray that we will be the hands and feet of Jesus. We pray for organizations like Choose Life, that they will, you continue to give them um, wisdom as they walk alongside um, um, women, Lord, who, who are facing this decision. And then help us to know, Lord, that we don't know what people go through. We don't know the, sh- the things that people face in this life. And so give us compassion. Help us stand for truth. But also give us compassion uh, for the least of these. And I pray for all of this in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, uh, please open it to Matthew chapter 5. We will be returning to verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And here's God's word to his beloved sons and daughters. This is our Savior speaking, beginning in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, neither an odor or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Please pray with and for me. Holy Spirit, as we come to the preaching of the word, I pray, as I pray at the beginning of the service, that you would be the counselor, that you would be the one who uh, leads us into truth, that you would be the one to give us clear understanding of what Christ is saying in these four verses. And so I pray that you would take control of our minds, take control of our emotions, and that you would give us clarity. And I pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, it appears to be a passage that's out of place in the Sermon on the Mount. 
It appears to be, as I said last week, doing its own thing, uh, but it's not. It does belong. You see, Jesus expresses his, his main thesis statement in this sermon with these words, with these four verses. He expresses his main point of the Sermon on the Mount. He enters into the body of the sermon with these four verses, and he continues to give his disciples convictions he wants them to embrace. And the conviction in this passage is to be influencers under influence. Influencers under influence. And they're to be under his influence, Jesus' influence, his Savior influence, his Lordship influence, his teaching influence. Living under the influence of his authority, his wisdom, his guidance, his mercy, his grace, and even his discipline. And here's the main point of discernment, the same main point from last week. And this is, and this is it. Since Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets, believers are now free to use them as a guide through this life. Since Jesus completes the law and the prophets, believers are now free to live by their influence as a light to their feet, a lamp to their feet, and a light to their path. This is done without fear, without judgment, without guilt, without shame, and without condemnation. Those are all amen statements. Y'all should know this by now, saints. I preached on the first two verses last week, verses 17 and 18. In them, Christ says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I say to you, until heaven and the earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus' relationship with the Old Testament is one of fulfillment and completeness. He fulfills and he completes the Old Testament and laws and prophets with his actions and his teachings. But do we believe that? That's where we have to start. You have to believe that first before we get to the next part of the sermon. Christ fulfills it all. Transcendent athletes are athletes who transcend their sport. They become bigger than their sport. Even non-sport fans know these athletes like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, Tiger Woods. Even Zion Williamson, is, is the future number one pick in the draft, NBA draft, has already been labeled one of these athletes. And similarly, Jesus also transcends. He's also transcendent. He doesn't just fulfill and complete the Old Testament. He transcends them as well. For he's greater than Moses. That's the amen statement. Greater high priest. Greater savior. Greater prophet. Greater king. He's superior. And this is what the book of Hebrews tells us. In Hebrews 1 verses 1 through 4 it says, Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, through whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high and having become more superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus is transcendent of the Old Testament. He fulfills it and he completes it. And there's a consequence that flows from those truths, a result. And Christ gives us that result in verses 19 and 20. He introduces it with with the word, therefore. Therefore. Because verses 18, 17 to 18, therefore, because Jesus fulfills and completes and transcends the Old Testament, therefore, because of his finished work, therefore, because of his life and death and resurrection, therefore, therefore leads to a discussion about attitudes. And every person in the world has an attitude. And every person in this room has an attitude. And some of you have an attitude right now because you really don't want to be here. The dictionary meaning of attitude, it says it's the way you feel about someone or something. It can be a particular feeling and opinion. What is your attitude about your siblings? What is your attitude about church towards your spouse, 
towards your church family, towards the people you disagree with, towards your parents, towards your coworkers? Is it a positive attitude, negative attitude, right attitudes, wrong attitudes? As one Christian says, I'm convinced that life is 10% of what actually happens and 90% of how I react to it. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what actually happens and 90% of how I react to it. How you react is your attitude. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus talks about certain attitudes believers, Christians, can have towards God's law, commandments, his word, and his scriptures. And there are two negative attitudes and wrong opinions in these two verses given by our Savior. The first wrong attitude is antinomianism. It's a fancy word that means anti-law. It's an attitude of licentiousness. It's the view that believers have been completely released from any obligation of the moral law by grace. Look at verse 19a with me. Jesus says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice these words by Christ. Some of God's commandments are weightier than others. These commandments, they're the least and the weightier ones, are referring to the entire Old Testament. And to relax on even the smallest one means to reduce God's law and commandments and word to nothing. It's to practice and teach that the Old Testament has no place in the life of believers. It's to annul the law and the prophets. It's to regard them as invalid. It's to deprive the Old Testament of its divine authority. As one Christian says, it means to loosen its hold on our conscience and to loosen its authority on our life. This attitude towards the Old Testament is negative and wrong. It's not the attitude Christ wants for his people. It's not the attitude he wants us to have towards the very scriptures that bear witness about him. Amen. The Greek term that is translated relax in verse 19 is similar to the term that's translated abolish in verse 17. The term in verse 17 is a compound word of the one in verse 19. You see, if Jesus didn't come to abolish, to destroy, and to make irrelevant the Old Testament, then neither are his people who are called by his name. We don't have that power. We don't have that authority. We don't have the security clearance, and it's above our pay grade. Way above it. He says, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say doing these things, keeping these commandments will get you into heaven. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say not doing them will cause you to lose your salvation. He is saying antinomianism and licentiousness will lead you to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't want his people to have those negative attitudes towards God's law and commandments and word. He doesn't. Now, it's true that believers aren't under the law as a covenant. Amen. Believers are not under the law as a covenant. Please write that in the margins of your Bible. So when you leave here, you know, you can quote me rightly. Believers are not under the law as a covenant. It's true that they're not under the law as a means of being justified before God. Okay? Those are amen statements. The law cannot make you right with the Father. Saving faith in Christ alone secures and maintains a person's salvation. Justification before God is based on Christ's finished work. It's not based upon your performance and your productivity. It's faith alone in Christ, period. And yet this faith, this faith that believers have does not abolish God's law and commandments completely out of the lives of his sons and daughters. It doesn't. Romans, in Romans 3, verses 28 to 31, the Apostle Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
What? We uphold the law. Believers uphold the law by the same faith that justifies them. This means the law, God's law and commandments still have a place in the life of believers. It's not a covenantal place, but it's a place. It's a role. I want you all to consider something for a moment. If God's law is invalid and no longer relevant for believers, then on whose authority can you say abortion is wrong? Think about that. If you're in a grace, not under law, then how do you know abortion is wrong? What gives you the right to say it's wrong? Your authority? Alabama's authority? Think about it. On, the, on whose authority can we say sexual and physical and emotional abuse are wrong if God's law is invalid in the lives of believers? On whose authority can we say human trafficking is wrong? On whose authority can we say racism and injustice and discrimination are wrong? On whose authority can you tell your kids sex before marriage is wrong if you're not under the law, but you're under grace? Is that, if that's what that means, you have no right to tell them that because you're putting them under the law. That's what that would mean if the law has no place in your life. On whose authority can you say murder is wrong? On whose authority can you say gossip and slander are wrong? On whose authority can you say marriage is between one man and one woman? On whose authority can you say pride and greed and self-righteousness are wrong? On whose authority can you tell your spouse he needs to, she needs to be faithful to you? On whose authority can you tell them that? Whose authority? Whose standard? If God's law, if the Old Testament no longer has a place in your life, you have no grounds to call sin, sin, evil, evil, injustice, injustice. You have no grounds. You have no support, no grounds to support Alabama's new law on abortion if God's law is not relevant in your life. You have no grounds. You might as well just be a moral relativist. If you, do, if you say the law, God's commandment, the Old Testament is no longer relevant for believers. You have no grounds to hold anyone accountable for anything. You have no grounds to say there's absolute truth in the world. Why do we say there's absolute truth? Because of the Constitution of the United States? Because of the bills of, Bill of Rights? Or is it because of this? This includes the New Testament and the Old Testament. If God only wanted us to have one, he would have given us the New Testament. Only. It's both. The whole counsel of God is in both of these testaments. Whole counsel. And for believers, this is the standard by which we govern our life. This is our standard. This is our measuring stick. And when you say parts of it is not, doesn't apply to you, then people can pick and choose what they believe is truth. Again, on what grounds, on whose authority do you say something is right? On whose grounds and on whose authority do you say something is wrong? It's either this or it's you. It's either God or it's man. On whose grounds? In Romans 7, verses 6 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, But now we are released from the law, having died to which held us captive, so that we may serve in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. If it have not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So what role, what place does God's law and commandments have in the life of believers? What role and place does the Old Testament have in the lives of believers? It has a rule of life role in place. A rule of life. Believers uphold uh, the law by faith by using it as a rule of life, not as a justification, not as a means of being justified before God. Because remember my main point, since Christ fulfills the law and the prophets, believers are now free to use them as a guide through this life. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That is a rule of life. What does a rule of life mean? Think about it like this. Think about it like guardrails. 
pay attention, kiddos, because if you can understand this, you have so much joy in your Christian life. A rule of life is like guardrails on the highway. Guardrails serve a very important purpose and role. They're designed to keep people and vehicles from straying into dangerous and off-limits areas. They're protective measures put in place for your well-being and safety. Guardrails are for your benefit. For your benefit. If you're in a car wreck and you run into a guardrail, you're thankful, particularly if you're on the mountain. The same is true for believers when it comes to God's word, his commandments, and his, his law. It's a rule of life. It's a guardrail. They're guardrails for your freedom in Christ. Guardrails on your freedom in Christ highway. You see, a rule of life is, is a skeleton for freedom. It's infrastructure for your freedom. I came across a good description for a rule of life on the Internet. And listen to what this person says. It says a rule of life then is, 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 is it means whereby under God we take responsibility for the pattern of our lives. It is a measure rather than a law. The word rule has bad combinations for many implying restrictions and limitations and legalistic attitudes. But a rule of life is essentially about freedom. It helps us stay centered, bringing perspective and clarity to the way of life which God has called us. The word rule is derived from the Latin word regular, which means rhythm, regularity of pattern, a recognizable standard. For the conduct of life. A rule is an orderly way of existence, but we embrace it as a way of life, not keeping a list of rules. It is a means to an end, and the end is that we may seek God with authenticity and live more effectively for him. That is what it means to approach God's word as a rule of life. A rule of life is a positive attitude that Christ wants for us to have towards God's law and commandments and words and word. It's opposite of an antinomian attitude. It's different from a licentious attitude. Believers who approach God's word like this do what Christ says in 17, 19b. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a rule of life. A rule of life. That is the place that the Old Testament, God's word, God's commandments, and God's laws have in your life as a son and daughter is a rule of life. It's the authority by which you base your decisions. The authority and grounds on which you stand upon. That's, those are amen. Just hold it up then. Just hold it up then. What thoughts, come, what thoughts do you contemplate when you hear the words strobes and Pharisees? What emotions do you feel when you hear the words, scribes and Pharisees? It's not good thoughts. It's not good emotions. Those two words represent legalism, works-based salvation, and self-righteousness for many believers. But what do you think they represent for Jesus' original audience and listeners? Not legalism. Not legalism. The, the, the original listeners, they don't have the same negative um, perspective and emotions towards these two words that, that we do. Why? Because they have a positive view of the people these two terms represent. Strivers, they, they, they are teachers and students of the law. They're the professional experts, and the people respect them. They do. They have a positive view of them. These, these strivers would be more like your ordained clergy today, your seminary professors. The missionaries, you know, the super Christians, the ones who really love Jesus. The Pharisees are a group of lay people. They are a laity group who devote themselves to strict observance of the Old Testament and traditions of man. They, 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 they're so strict, they even add to God's law, man-made traditions. They add to it. It ain't enough just to have this. They add more things so they don't break this one. And the people respect them. They see them as a positive light. The laity group could be like your elders, your deacons, your ministry leaders, your super volunteers of the church. So your average Joe and Jane listening to Jesus 
sees these scribes and Pharisees as righteous people they won't ever be able to measure up to. Just like you do with some of the Christians you respect and admire. You have Christian respect, Christians in your life that you admire and respect. You say, man, I can't ever measure up to them. And with that thought in mind, you should be able to feel the, the weight of Christ's next words to them. When he says, for truly I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mind completely blown. Hopelessness set in. Imagine the mental and emotional state. Because they, they don't see these, these two groups as negative. They respect these groups of people. And to, to hear Jesus say, you got to be more righteous than them. Well, man, I ain't going to get in. That's how they feel. How can I get in then? Because look at their life. Look at what they're doing. They're righteous. They're religious. And look at me. I'm just an average Joe or average Jane. If they can't get in to be more righteous than them, that is impossible, Jesus. Impossible. Come on, Lord. Mercy, Lord, as my wife will say. You see, our Savior does not possess the same positive view that his original listeners do about scribes and Pharisees. He sees right through their righteousness. He sees it for what it really is. And John, too, says Christ did not entrust himself to people because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness to him about man, for he himself knows what was in man. He knows that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is an external works-based righteousness, and their heart is not in it. It's just performance. And such righteousness leads to Jesus' second negative and wrong attitude that believers can have towards God's law, and that is legalism. Legalism. Legalism is negative. Legalism is wrong. And believers with a legalistic attitude misuses God's law and commandments. They don't use them as a means, as a rule of life. Instead, they use their obedience as a means to earn God's favor, blessings, and love. They use them as a means to create their own righteousness. Legalism leads you into idolatry. That means you begin to worship your performance and productivity, and not Jesus. Such believers are all about the letter of the law. Such believers add to the law their own man-made religions and traditions. And such believers, they even disrespect God's law because they lower its standard to just external obedience. They don't ever deal with the heart of it. It's just external obedience. External obedience. The late R.C. Sproul says, the legalist isolates the law from the God who gave the law. Think about that. The legalist isolates the law from the God who gave it. He is not so much seeking to obey God and to honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of a personal relationship. There's no love, no joy, no life, no passion. It's a mindless, mechanical form of law-keeping that's called externalism. The legalists focus only on obeying rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which his in which he gave his law in the first place. And legalistic righteousness isn't what Christ desires for his people. A legalistic attitude towards God's law and commandments isn't what Christ wants for his people. He says a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees is necessary. And such a righteousness can only be imputed and not earned. Credited to, not worked for. Given, not performed for. The righteousness that surpasses these two groups of people is Christ's righteousness that he freely gives to all who come to him in saving faith. Romans 5, 18 and 20 says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, 
the meaning we be made righteous. And that is Christ's obedience. That is his finished work. But do we believe that? Do we rest in that? Romans 3, 21 and 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been given apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All believers, every person who has saving faith in Jesus, stand before God righteous because of that faith. That's an amen statement. Righteous because of that faith. And as one commentator says, Jesus wants his people to live in accordance with that standing. Live in accordance with that righteous standing you have before God. This living begins with an internal, internally with your heart, mind, and soul. That is, you love God and you love your neighbor. For the law and the prophets hang on two commandments. Love God and love neighbor as yourself. That surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Because they followed rules, but they didn't love people. They didn't love God. Do you believe that? You see, legalism and, and external righteousness is really self-centeredness. Because its, it's, it's only concern is how well you are performing and producing and working. You don't love people. You love yourself. The righteousness that Christ gives, it, it gives you wholeheartedness towards God. Your whole self is, is bending more towards him. Your will and your desires and your motives and your passions and your heart is bending towards God. It, it allows you to sing that song, that patient song. Oh, how I love you. Legalists don't say saying things like that. The legalist loves himself, his performance. He doesn't love Jesus. Like the older son in the father's house. He didn't love the father. He performed for the father. He worked for the father, but he did not respect and love the father. He just worked for him. Jesus gives you a righteousness that allows you to like God back. He gives you the righteousness to, to say, I love God. I can really love him. And I can love other people. The righteousness that Christ gives moves you to love people more than your programs, your policies, and your projects. The kind of righteousness uh, that Christ gives, it, it, it focuses on the spirit of the law more so than the letter of the law. The kind of righteousness that, that blesses you with freedom. Legalism doesn't, isn't freedom. Antinomianism isn't freedom. That's, they're enslavement. They, they enslave you. They own you. You don't own them. But when you live in what Christ has given you, you realize he's given you freedom. Freedom to fail, freedom to struggle, freedom to make mistakes, the freedom to know Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to glorify Jesus. That's the attitude Christ wants for you if you have faith in him. Do you have it? Do you want it? It's a rule of life attitude and it's a wholehearted attitude towards God. Love for God, love for neighbor. It's not legalism, and nor, nor is it licentiousness. But do you believe it? Where do you live? Where is your heart? Where is your heart? Where is it, saints? Look at this table. This table is a, it's the Lord's table. It's a reminder that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. This table is a reminder of his finished work. It's a reminder of his words that it is finished. And Jesus didn't say it's finished, so in return, you will live a licentious life. He didn't say it is finished, so in return, you should live a legalistic life. It finished means you are free to use God's word as a rule of life. It's finished means you are free to love God and others without fear, shame, and guilt. It is finished means you already have all God's favor and attention. So don't turn your eyes from this table. Look at it. Reflect upon what it means for your life. 
It is finished means you can wholeheartedly give yourself to God and you can wholeheartedly love him back and like him back. It is finished means God sees the depth of your heart and yet he loves you the same. It is finished means there's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is finished means our hope is built on nothing less for Jesus' blood and righteousness. It is finished means Christ is your solid rock. And your legalism and your licentiousness are both sacred sand. It is finished means all people who have saving faith in Jesus can come to this table and partake of this meal. Do you know him? Do you know him? Is your legalism burning you out? Then come. Your licentiousness beating you down, leaving you no hope? Then come. As Christians, you're going to struggle with those two things. You're going to struggle with them, but you don't have to live in them. You just got to know where you are in the battle. And ask the Holy Spirit to help you. This meal... This Holy Spirit can use this meal to nourish you spiritually. And this meal is for people who don't have it all together. And none of us have it all together. You look good, you dress fine, but you're messy people. You may do a good job of hiding that mess, but you're messy. You're messy. And Christ says, come to this table and let me minister to that mess. Let me minister to that heart of yours. Let me remind you that I love you. Friends and neighbors, if you don't know Jesus, I consider it an honor that you're here. And if you have questions about what it means to know Jesus in faith, please see me at the end of the service. And I will tell you about the wonderful news of Jesus, how he loves you, how he died on the cross for your sins, and how through him you can be forgiven of all your sins. Through him. There's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved, and that is Jesus Christ. Your career won't save you. Money won't save you. Success won't save you. Because guess what? That stuff will go away one day. Because when you go to be standing before God, you ain't going to have your bank account with you. It's just going to be you. And you're going to either stand before him on Christ's righteousness or your righteousness. Now, if you're standing on yours, it ain't going to go well for you. But if you're standing on Christ, you're good. You are safe. Adults, I also ask the kids with you abstain from the elements until they have been invited to the table by the church that you are a member of. Now, all the kids, all teens, this is my favorite part of communion because I get to address each of you as your pastor that this meal is a reminder to each and every one of you that Christ loves you and he likes you even when you make mistakes. Even when you fail, even when you disobey and obedient to your parents, he doesn't say, I'm going to withhold affection from you. He died because he knows you're going to be disobedient. He, know, he dies because he knows you're going to fall short. And he doesn't say, get yourself together before you come to me. He says, come to me and I'll get you together. Come to me and I'll dress you. Come to me, I'll make you fresh and so clean. And you got to understand that, kids. As you grow older, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. It's only through Jesus Christ. Now, I want all of you to graduate and get your nice job and and get that nice whatever it is you want to get. But I want you to know those things will not save you. You will always be searching for a savior until you come to Jesus. And that's only through him will you be truly satisfied. And so if, if you have questions, kids, about salvation and what it means to be saved, I'm your pastor, too. You can come talk to me, and I'll tell you about the good news of the gospel and how you can receive salvation and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because it's my prayer that you will be, each of you will leave the church as believers when you go off and leave here one day. I'm glad to call the, uh, the men assisting me, and the, uh, the elders and deacons assisting to come forward. And as, as they come, I'm going to pray a blessing over this time, and then we will partake of the Lord's meal. I need one more. Amos, can you come help? Let us pray. 
Holy Spirit, you, these elements are just common elements, but you can use them to minister to um, God's people. And I pray that you would do that, that you see us, you see our worries, you see what we're going through. You see our tendencies toward legalism and licentiousness. I pray that you would minister to that. Help us to rest. Help us to live freely. And we cannot do that in our own strength and our own power. We need you, Holy Spirit, who lives in all believers to give us the wisdom and the humility and the patience with ourselves to just be faithful to the things that Christ has called us to. I do pray for all of this. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And having given thanks, he he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, my heart is yours. It all belongs to you. I give you all the glory. Yes, I love you. I worship and adore. I want to tell you more. Oh, Lord, how much I really do love you. Lord, my heart is yours. It all belongs to you. I give you all the glory. Yes, I love you. I worship and adore. I'm gonna tell you more. Oh Lord, how much I really do love you. And I love you. Christ's body broken for all y'all. Eat of it, all y'all. <laughs> In the same manner, he also took the cup. And having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. I give you all the glory, yes, I love you, I worship and adore, I'm going to tell you more, oh, Lord, how much I really do love you, Lord, my heart is yours. It all belongs to you. I give you all the glory. Yes, I love you. I worship and adore. I'm going to tell you more. Oh, Lord, how much I really do love you. And I love you, Lord, how I love you, I love you, Lord, how I love you, I love 
This is Christ's blood shed for all our sins, past, present, and future, and we bear them no more. Drink from it, all of you. Amen. Would you please stand as we close our service? on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory, glory in the highest I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God and we're standing, we're standing. Standing on the promises Overcoming daily with the Spirit's Lord, standing on the promises of God, and we're standing, standing, standing on the promises of God, my Savior. guests today thank you so much for joining us and if you haven't had a chance to fill out our connection pad please do so and if you're a first-time guest please visit our information table we have a small gift we would like to give to you now here's god's benediction